Good morning. My name is Thomas Reimer, and this morning I'd like to share with you a little bit about what I've been doing during my PhD studies at the Toronto School of Theology. We've been hearing so much about frontline workers, people who during this pandemic have been working in healthcare and essential services and literally putting themselves in harm's way on behalf of the rest of us. What I do is pretty much the opposite of that, pretty much as far from that as possible. I work in a little shed in my backyard and I study the Latin writings of a 9th century mystic that most people have never heard of and really haven't benefited from in any clear way. This mystic's name is Johannes Scotus Eriugena, which means John the Scot, the Scot at that time meant the Irishman, Eriugena, which means born in Ireland. So John, Irish, the Irish-born. He refers to himself mostly just as Eriugena, so that's what we tend to call him. We know next to nothing of the details of Eriugena's life. He was born sometime around 800, the year that Charlemagne was crowned the Emperor of the Romans by the Pope. And he came across to the continent in his 30s or 40s, where he began as a teacher of rhetoric, just as Augustine had been. He eventually died in the 870s, and all that's reported about his death is that his students became so frustrated at his rigor and his meticulousness that they stabbed him to death with their quills. It obviously seems like a fanciful story, death by a hundred quills, but we just don't have any facts to disconfirm it. Eriugena first really rose to prominence in Europe as a translator of Greek. Greek was still being taught in Irish monasteries, but on the European continent at this time, there was a real divide between the Western Latin Empire and the Eastern Greek Byzantine Empire. They had different emperors, different popes, and they communicated so seldom that the Latins couldn't even read Greek anymore. In 827, an attempt was made at a kind of reconciliation between the two empires. The Byzantine emperor, named Michael the Stammerer, sent a gift to the Western emperor, now Charlemagne's son. The gift was a manuscript, a copy of the writings of one of the Greeks' most cherished theologians named Dionysius the Areopagite. And this manuscript actually still exists in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. Not only was it in Greek, but it was a Greek written without any punctuation or even spaces between words, and no one was able to make a proper translation of it until Charlemagne's grandson, Charles the Bald, had become emperor. Charles heard of Eriugena's linguistic skill and called on him to have a go at it. Eriugena's Latin translation and commentary of these Dionysian writings had an enormous impact on Christian theology and mysticism in the West. 
an influence we see on Thomas Aquinas, Eckhart, and others centuries later. Eriugena was blown away by this manuscript, and he devoted the next phase of his life to tracking down and translating some other connected Greek theological writings. He became more and more convinced that these contained a profound wisdom, even though they clashed at points with his received Latin tradition, influenced primarily by Augustine. The two empires, East and West, were never really reconciled and in fact grew further apart. But Eriugena, seeing the truth in both traditions, felt compelled to try to bring them together, at least philosophically. He decided to write his own theological work in an attempt to do just that. This, worked, this work, named the Paraphysion, or About the Natures of Things, is a massive cosmological account of God's creation of the universe and its ultimate return to God in a way that reconciles and moves beyond both Augustine and Dionysius. This is the work that I'm studying for my dissertation. This Greek manuscript of Dionysius that was gifted to the West is filled with triads, groups of three, modeled after the Trinity. And one of the triads that stood out most for Eriugena was the triad of purification, illumination, deification. This triad was the hallmark of Greek asceticism or monastic practice. Through purification of the body and the mind, a purification that was achieved by controlling diet, sleep patterns, sexual impulses, and desires in general, humans, it was thought, are able to open themselves more fully to illumination from above, to receive God's wisdom and direction. Then, through this illumination, we are transformed and become ourselves more godlike, more good. In other words, by getting distractions like hunger and restlessness under control, we're able to maintain the focus required to sit in deep enough prayer and meditation to see things the way that God does. I find that it certainly takes all of my powers of concentration to understand what Eriugena was saying. There's the language barrier to deal with, uh, of course, but there's also the immense distance of time and culture, and there's the pandemic, and my kids at home constantly and very effectively vying for my attention. And yet, I certainly feel that he speaks to me and says something meaningful about creation and the creator. So I've decided to try to find conditions where I can concentrate, where I can listen. With Shoshana's support, I was able to quit my carpentry job and go back to school full time. And now during the pandemic, I was able to take over our garden shed and renovate it for some insulation against the elements, the elements named Safi and Yasha. 
But I feel my purification at this point could go much further. There are, there are ideas here so refined, so rarefied, that a brain trained on Twitter and a body lax from snacks are simply not sufficient for the stillness needed to hear them. The choice, the choice to devote my life to a deeper form of asceticism or purification also runs up against an ethical roadblock. For medieval mystics like Eryujana, this triad of purification, illumination, deification was the height of ethical living. But what about our time? What about the social and economic crises of inequality and racism, or the environmental crisis of climate change? Is a life of individual asceticism, hiding away in my backyard despite such widespread suffering, in any way ethically justifiable? In good academic fashion, I did write a paper on this question, specifically on asceticism as a social form of resistance to late capitalism. Uh, not austerity, mind you, but asceticism. But I'd like to raise instead the issue of climate change, which really brings this quandary into focus. I've re recently come across the devastating revelation that the notion of a personal carbon footprint in fact comes from a marketing campaign from none other than BP, British Petroleum, back in the early 2000s. The idea that we as individuals are responsible for climate change and solutions therefore come down to our personal choices rather than major corporate and systemic change. This idea has been an extremely effective way for the fossil fuel industry to continue to expand and the climate crisis to remain substantially unaddressed. A recent podcast I listened to mentioned this comic by a guy named Tommy Siegel. In the 80s, we were told that if you pick up your litter, you can save the earth. In the 90s, it was recycle and you can save the earth. In the 2000s, it was reduce your carbon footprint and you can save the earth. By now, in the 2010s and 2020, it's become apparent that if we completely restructure global economic systems, we may be able to save a remnant of humanity. The same podcast speaks with Bill McKibben, the famous American environmentalist, who has a triad of his own. Instead of <clears throat> purification, illumination, deification, McKibben believes that the only ethical course of action in the face of climate change is step one, to organize, step two, to organize, and step three, to organize. Only if we get past these steps should we worry about plastic straws or changing out our light bulbs. So what is my ethical path? 
do I continue to follow my passion, to seek out the quiet and solitary places and commune with writers from the distant past? Or do I join in rallying as many as we can and try to make as much noise as possible? Do I try to block out cries of suffering from the earth and from the poor and from the oppressed to try to hear better what God is saying? If my passion looked like that, it would definitely be time to give up that passion. Fortunately for me, the purification envisioned in this triad of purification, illumination, deification, it's not an all-or-nothing thing. It wasn't an all-or-nothing thing for the medievals. God's illumination doesn't wait until we are absolutely purified to speak to us. In fact, ascetic purification or any ethical act is impossible without God's illumination in the first place. It's a liturgical process, a call and a response, a back and forth. The same goes for the transformation or the deification. This isn't something just at the end of the road, but something happening constantly. It's how we become good people, God's people. And it's a transformation into love. The, pur the purification of the mind's volitions and the body's desires is a purification of our love for the good, for the common good. And we all need a refined and powerful love to save a remnant of humanity.